Let's open in prayer. Mighty God, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to dig into the beauty of your word. Lord, you're calling upon your nation and upon those that align with your nation and your Messiah. It's higher than we have previously appreciated. And so, Lord, we glorify your name. We say that your name is above every power, above every dominion, above every title that can be given. And we honor that name here tonight. In the great name of Yeshua HaMashiach, all the people of God said, Amen. All right, saints, we have a very special evening for you tonight. We want to thank you for spending your Memorial Day with us. We promise you're not going to be disappointed. We're going to be covering chapters 18, 19, and 20. This evening is going to be a war story like none other that you've experienced in the past. The information that we're going to cover tonight, it's pretty heavily dependent upon you understanding the implications of the material that we presented on Sunday, which is why we did that. That message was entitled, Going on the Offensive, Star Power. We want to begin tonight by reviewing a few highlights from that message. All right, so, wasn't that a good message yesterday? Did you learn some new things? want to share a few points from that message just to set our tone for tonight. So the first one, you guys remember in Job 38, relates to stars as angelic beings. Stars as angelic beings. And they were called the Benai Ha Elohim, or sons of God. And they were present before man at the foundation of the world. You guys remember that? Judges 5, we learned, has stars participating in warfare on earth. Stars, angelic beings, participating in warfare on the earth in the valley of Megiddo. Psalm 82 portrayed a heavenly, heavenly council of Benaiha Elohim, or spiritual beings, and links them with the starry or celestial realm. Yeah. God has a heavenly council. That's right. We also learned in Jeremiah 23 that that passage rebukes the prophets who speak on behalf of God that have never witnessed, heard, seen, or stood in communication with this heavenly council. Also in Job chapter 4 and chapter 15, it indicated that the heavens as a whole, but specifically the Benai Ha Elohim, are not pure. Yeah. That even some angelic beings have sinned. Wow. It's not exactly a nursery rhyme, but it is what the text itself indicates. Yeah. In a summary of the worldwide failure of humanity in Genesis, Genesis 6, we noted the participation of the Benai Ha Elohim in mankind's rebellion and failure. Wow. In a summary of Genesis 10 and 11, we saw the 70 nations rebel against God's commands at the Tower of Babel. We also noted that the biblical narrative shifts after that point to the story of only one nation. What's that nation, saints? Israel. Israel. That nation that God would use for the redemption and or condemnation of both the nations and the impure elements of the heavens. Wow. The events allowed a view of Deuteronomy 32 that assigns Israel as God's inheritance. Somebody say Israel. Israel. Israel was God's inheritance and the other 70 nations to the rogue elements of the heavenly realms. 
To wrap up our reminders, and if you're not catching them all, that's why the message is online, that's why we post our notes, and we're going to review some of them today. That Deuteronomy 32 worldview, where Israel is the nation that God inherits, and he disinherits the other nations, that was strengthened by Deuteronomy 4, which literally says God apportioned the heavenly array to the other nations. There was a relationship between them, and unfortunately, they ended up worshiping them. Next, we moved and examined Psalm 82, which displays God's indictment of these other lesser Elohims or lesser gods. He's indicting them because they have led the nations into grievous sin. And he literally says, because of it, you spiritual beings are going to die like mere men. That each of those points that we've recapped, they led us to a supernatural view of Genesis 15 that is often not quite understood as the level of promise that it is to Abram. Abram, look up at the heavens. So shall your offspring be. We've always taken that to mean you'll have as many as there are stars in the sky, as in quantity. But he's also talking about quality. Their substance would become like the angelic beings. Of course, the first descendant of Abraham that we see that way is Jesus glorified. Rising in glorified bodies as rulers over even the celestial realms is the aim of both the older and the newer testament. And it's why the resurrection of the dead is the linchpin of the faith. Our faith is not about getting a ticket to Disneyland in the sky. It is about being given immortal bodies in ruling over the heavens and the earth as the body of Messiah. If, uh, if again, if that seems overwhelming to you, if that's not something that you quite grasp, a good introductory to it is this message, Star Power. It is both on... YouTube, and uh, our sermon app. So tonight, we're going to do something different than we've done in 27 years of teaching through the Bible. We normally have Miss Jennifer read our entire text, and then we go back through the text line by line. That's been particularly entertaining through nine chapters of genealogies. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to read through every word but we're going to do it together and explain between verses. Now, that's not my preference, but we have so much material to cover tonight that even on a holiday evening, there's no chance we could do this in our time frame if we did not do it this way. So there, every word will be covered, but we're going to interject in between them. We're beginning in 1 Chronicles 18 and verse 1. And we will need a reader that does not mind being interrupted regularly. All right. Brother Linton is, uh, has been our historic uh, counterpart to Miss Jim. So everybody in Chronicles 18, verse 1? Yes. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And he took Gath and its surrounding villages from the control of the Philistines. Mm. So David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. 
You guys remember last week we covered a little bit about what this word subdued means? I want to put it back on the screen for you. This is the Hebrew word hana, and it means to bend the knee. Hence, to humiliate, vanquish, to bring down into subjection, under humble subdue. It means to bend the knee. Now, I want to hand out a few scriptures on that because we're going to make some ties in what's coming up here. So who wants to read? Nolan, you get Romans 14, 11 through 12, and you're going to be inter- interrupted in between those. JJ, you get Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Hayes, you're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. Rob, you take 2 Timothy 2, 12. Asad, you're going to get Revelation 5, 9 through 10. And one more, Cho, you're going to read 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 4. Now, as always, call out your scripture references as you read it. And I wanted to point to a second definition of Kana for, for no other reason than a, a specific phrase. This comes from the complete word study dictionary. A verb indicating to humble, to subdue, to be humble. It has the basic sense of being lowly or meek. It is used of the Lord's humbling of the uncircumcised and prideful and hard. This is not just that somebody uh, decided to humble themselves. It's whether they wanted to or not. So who's got the first verse? Romans 14, 11 and 12. It is written, as, uh, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So saints, you guys remember last week, there was a promise made that every knee was going to bow before David. David before the Davidic son that would be brought into its fulfillment with Davidic, the Davidic son. We even talked about the ways in which God will humble the proud even in this own room. God is able to take those that are haughty of heart and cause them to submit, whether willingly or not willingly. And it's something that we ought to reconcile with. But I want to tell you that clearly all humanity is going to bow before the Davidic son. But in the chapters that are coming, something else is going to be foreshadowed. There is the idea that is going to be presented that these hostile geographic neighbors of Israel are all presented by Ezra as becoming subject to and bowing to David, as well as the entities that represent them and lead them. More on that topic is Philippians 2. You'll find out that everything that was written in the Newer Testament was written right out of the Older. The Holy Spirit certainly breathed the words on the pages through them, but you mustn't think of it as a trance. They were working from a thorough knowledge of the Scripture and they were expounding on it as the Holy Spirit showed them. Paul, writing in a chiastic structure in Philippians 2, takes us through one of the prettiest things in the Newer Testament. We're only going to pick up on the second half of the structure. Philippians 2, 9. 9 through 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, in our previous passage from Romans 14, it was clear that every human being is going to bow at the name of Jesus. 
But Paul expands that Older Testament quote in Philippians 2 to literally say every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. You know, what remains less clear to the average Christian or the moderately serious Christian is that even the powers in the heavenly realms are going to show themselves as subject to the Davidic son. This is really the meaning of one of the most important passages in the Newer Testament that is even less understood. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Who had that? Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that he does not include God himself to put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him to put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Now when we read this, we hear he destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. What does all dominion mean? It means everything in the heavens and everything below the heavens on the earth. God is in the process of putting everything under subjugation of the Son of David. Now, what seems even more opaque to the, to the nominal watered-down crowd is that you are called to reign with Him. He's putting everything, all dominion, whether heaven and on earth, under David's feet, under the Son of David's feet, but you are called to reign beside Him. We can find that in 2 Timothy 2.12. Who's got that? If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we disown him, he will, disown, he will also disown us. If we endure, there are seven promises to the overcomer in the opening of Revelation throughout the churches. There is a promise that goes out through the gospel that not only will he be exalted and will he reign, but his sons will reign with him if we endure. See, our call to Christ is not simply belief. It's not simply a moment where we stood with him. It's a life of endurance that we then reign alongside him. That is the hope that we are longing for. Who has Revelation 5, 9 through 10? It says, And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. They will do what on the earth? Reign on the earth. See, it's not just about getting a Disneyland ticket to go to heaven. In fact, that's kind of a ridiculous medieval fairy tale. It's actually about the heavens and the earth merging and you being the ruling agency of both with Christ. This is why Ephesians places you on the throne with Christ. Listen, if we can't dwell with each other, how on earth are you going to rule and reign with Christ? If you can't conquer your own evil inclinations when nobody's looking, how are you going to rule and reign with Christ? It's not just me speaking like this. Our next passage, you'll hear Paul address Christians in a church that have factions among them and listen to how he addresses them. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 1-4. He's got that. not know that the saints will judge the world. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you 
not know that we will judge angels? How much more this, the things of this life? I love the fact that he has to say, do you not know that we will judge angels? Uh-huh. You see, it's calling us to live a certain lifestyle knowingly that we are going to judge powers that right now are higher than us. That is what Sunday's message was all about. We are becoming sons of God. We are becoming those things, and we will eventually judge those things. Just like Jesus inhabited human flesh, he rose and he is there. We will join with him, and we will judge. That is how we ought to live. We ought to live like that now, so that when we get there, we will have something to judge them on. Do you think there's one Christian in a thousand that actually understands and believes that they will judge celestial powers? At some point, we're going to have to move away from your grandmother's Bible study and actually read your Bible. Because he didn't have to explain this to the Corinthians. He said, do you not know it? It, They already understood it. He was only reminding them of what they already knew. Saints, as we continue with this viewpoint in mind, I'm going to have Linton pick back up and he's going to read through 11. We're going to interrupt a few times to pick up some details as we go. Linton, go ahead. David also defeated the Moabites, and they became subject to him and brought tribute. Moreover, moreover, David fought had a desert had a desert king of Zoba as far as Hamad when he was to establish his control along the Euphrates River. David captured a thousand of his chariots, seven thousand charioteers, charioteers, and twenty thousand foot soldiers. He he hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. Pause real quick. So we are going to war, and we have references like the Euphrates River. Later we're going to show you that, but keep these things in mind. We're describing an expanse, and there are huge numbers of soldiers that are being presented, and even animals that are being slaughtered. This is a bloody scene that we're describing. Keep going, Brother Linton. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help at a desert of Zabat, David struck down 20,000 of them. He put, he put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. Pause one more time. The Lord gave David victory everywhere he went. Look, 22,000 people dying in a single battle. I mean, this is Civil War level stuff. If this happened today, the CDC would shut down the world for the next decade. <laughs> they, they took the gold shields, shields carried by the officers Towns that belonged to Hadadezer, David took a great quantity of bronze, which Solomon used to make the bronze sea, the pillars, and various bronze articles. So pause there. We have a few details that are mentioned that you do not see until later parts of Solomon's reign and other men's reign. We have shields that you may or may not hear about all the way up to the time of Hezekiah into the captivity. Well, this is where they came from. David took these golden shields from the enemies surrounding Jerusalem that were constantly posing a threat, and he's going to do something with each of these articles. Yeah. They're going to form something that is lasting. Pick up in verse 9 and read through 10 for me. When Tal, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, king of Zobah, he sent his son, Hadaram, to king David to greet, to greet him and congratulate him <laughs> on his victories in the battle over Hadadezer, <laughs> who had been at war with Tal. Hadaram brought all kinds of articles of gold and silver and bronze. Saints, this is probably one of the best pictures in all of the Bible of Psalm 2. We have the Davidic son conquering everywhere that he goes. 
And yet there are a few kings that notice, that pay attention, that watch. They don't go on in their own belligerent sin. He sends his son with gifts. It's very smart of the man to do. And what this does is it creates a kiss between this pagan and that Davidic son and prevents him from being shattered. You have to love Hadoram. He's a little bit like Rahab in this sense. When he sees what has happened to all of the kingdoms at the hands of the one nation God has chosen, he decided to bring a gift. (laughs) Pick up in verse 11, just 11. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord. As he had done with the silver and gold he had taken from all these nations, Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines, David got victory everywhere he went. God was with him, so he bought a Cadillac. No. God was with him, so he bought a bigger house. No. No, David collected the things that were from the victory God had given him, and he did something very, very specific with it. It's almost like he heard the promise that we were reading about last week. He knew something was coming that he himself didn't get to build, but someone else would, and he's preparing the way. Let's take a look at a couple passages together. First Chronicles 28, 11 through 13. Then our next one's going to be First Chronicles 29, 2 through 5. Who has our first one? Gabe, you get First Chronicles 28, 11 through 13. Who hasn't read? Aside. First Chronicles 29, 2 through 5. Whenever you get there, pick up with 28. First Chronicles 28. Starting in verse 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the portico of the temple, its buildings, its storerooms, its upper parts, its inner rooms, and the place of atonement. He gave him the plans of all that the Spirit had put in his mind for the courts of the temple of the Lord and all the surrounding rooms, for the treasuries of the temple of God and for the treasuries for the dedicated things. He gave him instructions for the divisions of the priests and Levites and for all the work of serving in the temple of the Lord, as well as for all the articles to be used in its service. He designated the weight of gold for all the gold articles to be used in various kinds of service and the weight of silver for all the silver articles to be used in various kinds of service. You got it. So here we have a father who has plans on what God wants to do in the family. A father giving the plans to his son. Okay, tell me that's not good. That's good. Come on. A father with plans handing those plans off to his son. I'm not going to preach about that too much, but you should take notice. Fathers ought to have plans and ought to pass those on. It says here that the Spirit put in his mind all these plans. All right, well, you know better than that. You've been taught better than that. You remember where he got those plans? From Samuel, through discipleship. He had those plans through discipleship, and that allowed him, out of all of his winnings, out of all of his war chests that he accumulated, he donated it to his son to build the temple. Man. Saints, what does Peter speak about the Scripture? That it was written by men as they were carried along by the Spirit. This is what we have here. This is divine inspiration that men came together and saw the vision of God. He had those plans... But more than that, in 1 Chronicles 29, he provided things for it. 
as well as onyx for the settings, turquoise, stones of various colors, and all kinds of fine stone and marble. All these in large quantities. Besides, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God. Over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple, 3,000 talents of gold, gold of Ophir, and 7,000 talents of refined silver for the overlaying of the walls of the building, for the gold work and for the silver work, and for all the work to be done by the craftsmen. Now, who is willing to consecrate himself today for the Lord? Uh -huh. I love this because David was once on the run from Saul and he didn't even have bread. He had to borrow a sword from the priest at Nob. You know, I, I don't know whether Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland have the same Bible or not, but David did not take the things that were the spoils of battle and enrich himself with them. He used them to further the plan of God and build the temple for his son. He gave both the plans for the temple and the provisions for the temple, and all of them came from the conquest over the geographical enemies of Israel. And when you're thinking about that, I want you to understand there's many fanciful understandings of the book of Revelation. And you have the right to be wrong if you want to. But tonight I, I want to hint at a correct view for you. Somebody read Revelation 21, 9 through 14. Was that handed out? Not yet. Okay, then, uh, Keith, read that. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls for the last place came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with, with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the name of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names now, Martin Luther once described heaven as something like a merry-go-round with gold streets where little children could play. Luther was apparently depraved from having killed Jews that week. What is it that we're reading? If the Newer Testament is written out of the Older Testament, then David and the twelve tribes fought with the nations and their gods. The tribute and the spoils of the conflict provided the materials for the temple or the dwelling of God on earth. This both showed Yahweh's supremacy over the lesser gods and it showed his mercy in that the nations contributed something by way of their role in the temple of God. Friends, you and I are the spoils of war. We are the precious materials that are being used to build the dwelling of God on earth. This is what Revelation is foreshadowing. We stand on the foundation of the Jewish apostles, and we are part of the construction of the temple. On the gates of our city 
should be the names of the tribes of Israel. Nothing that you've inherited is Norwegian. It's one of the only things you have that was not made in China. This is an Israeli gospel that you have been grafted into as a part of the great mystery of God. Justin, why don't you hand out a couple passages to help us understand that? All right, so Steve Thomas, you're going to read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, and Chris Riasori, you're going to read 1 Peter 1, 7. Listen to how Peshat this gets. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. First Peter 2, 4 through 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into... Are you in First Peter 2, you, 4? Let me just say that you're not. We'll never ask you a question we don't know the answer to. <laughs> we could all be surprised by the result. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house yeah. to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Where's our Spanish community? Somebody say, Gloria a Dios. You get to be a part of the temple. You are being built into a spiritual house. You are a result of Jesus Christ, the son of David, making war with powers above the wars that can, the, the spiritual forces that control your life, the spiritual forces that determine who you were and how you walk. Jesus Christ made war with those things. And now you are the spoils of that war. You are being built into that temple where God's spirit is dwelling. What's 1 Peter 1, 7? 1 Peter 1, 7 says this. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which uh, perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor with Jesus Christ is revealed. Trials have come. Trials have come. Offering spiritual sacrifices have come. Proving that you are a priest and that your faith is greater worth than gold. You see, David is winning gold from his battles. But what Jesus is winning is your obedience and your faith. What Jesus Christ is winning, his spoils of defeating all. It says he disarmed all the powers at the cross. His winnings out of that is your faith. Think about that for a second. Your faith is a reward to him. And that is what he is using to build the temple. Now, let's not think about faith in the way that George Michael sang about it in the late 80s. Okay? (laughs) Understand that there is a defection in the heavenlies. And there is a mass defection on the earth. So what God treasures are people that actually trust him. And that's what he builds his dwelling out of. That is what is precious. Why do trials refine that? Because they show that you actually trust him, that you don't turn to the gods of the nations, that you don't turn towards your evil inclinations, but that you trust he is able to make you into something to dwell in. Amen. Peter is kind enough to remind us that we are both precious in his building materials and that we must be refined. Somebody say amen to the idea that you're a process of refinement. The truth is each of us have dross, but we are being made into a holy article for his use and his permanent temple on the earth. Lindsay, will you pick up in 12 and read through 17, being prepared to be interrupted yet again? 
Oh, wait, one more time. How many? 18,000. Okay. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. And the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. So we feel the need to repeat this yet again, because the writer Ezra is making a point about the kind of dominance and the kind of victory that David is having. 18,000 Edomites. This is not a collection of several other battles. This is the war that they had with the Edomites dying right here in this valley, surrounding a certain geographical area. Read 14 through 17 for me. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. This is a description of his type of reign. He is a warrior, and he is a loving God that leads the people that he redeemed. And he's the only politician in the history of the world that has ever done this. (laughs) Nothing about David's characters in conflict. He is representing the God of the universe. His name is that he is a warrior. He is the master of war. He's also a tender shepherd caring for his sheep. And David is displaying the dualistic nature that God intended for you to represent to your children. Keep reading. Joab, son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, son of Elihu, was recorded. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Shabashah was secretary. Let's have him bonus next child. <laughs> Saints, so a brief note while we're here. We're not going to spend much time on this, but we find out who the recorder was during his day. What writings do you think Ezra was operating off of? We have records that is the king's record keeper that he compiles. Yeah. Ezra is taking these works and by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost is compiling it for our benefit. Thank you, Ezra. You've got to love that we all give Ezra credit for it, but you're going to meet Ahalud, and he's the one that wrote it down, and Ezra just compiled it. We'll see him in eternity. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was over the Kerithites and the Pelethites. Good name. were chief officials at the king's side. Okay, we want to put something on a map for you. We, we want you to see this. Look, wow, that's a little difficult to see. But we're still going to get the point here. So we hear each of these random names that feel random to us, that are difficult to pronounce. We want you to look at the geography of Israel and begin to get the picture that the original hearer of it would get. Because these are their neighbors. This is like saying Mississippi. This is like saying Oklahoma. These are regions right around where they live. Particularly when you consider Edomites and Ammonites. (laughs) Mississippi, Arkansas. They're your relatives that were born out of an unnatural union. We don't have any Edomites in here, do we? <laughs> if your daddy was Lot, you're in trouble. A lot. Anybody see the top of the screen? Yes. It's up there. But this whole region is heading up towards Syria, towards Damascus, towards Turkey. We have Iran and Damascus right here in this corner. So when we're speaking about these powers, they range from this corner all the way up to the Euphrates River, which borders between Syria and Turkey modern day. As you move down the screen, you see Amnon and Rabbah, the capital, here. Keep moving down, you see Moab, here. Then we have Edom and Basra that encapsulate this southern kind of region. Then all along up this coast in yellow is the Philistine area. This is where you have Gaza, which is still a problem today. You have Gath, you have places like Eshkelon, where a lot of men that our soldiers are going to be fighting against shortly in David's time. When you look around, we are bordered by the sea, 
and by enemies on all sides. Yeah. It forms a kind of circle. This is being illustrated for a reason. These are not random victories. These are the victories that surround God's people. So in 3,000 years, not a lot has changed for Israel. Now, when you are thinking about this, it ought to bring to mind that David is trotting out the wine press of God's wrath against regional, historical enemies of Israel. What is really happening is the chronicler is explaining to you that this is an expression of Yahweh's dominance over these people and their gods. It is a form of retribution for historic animosity for the one nation that Yahweh chose for himself. The brothers are going to hand out some passages to you, but if you picture from the bottom right-hand side of the screen, the Lord coming from the direction of Basra and working in a circular fashion up into the left and then all the way around, this would make Megiddo or Armageddon, the valley of Megiddo, the high point in the wine press. And God is literally stepping on them like a man would step on grapes, saying, you would not answer my rule, and you would not be subject to the people that I said were to teach you, and so the day has come for your judgment. Most of those passages start with God pronouncing judgment on Edom and Moab, and that is because it's the direction that the prophets see him approach from. Some of them are so graphic that it says, look, he's going to stand on your head, and he's going to grind your face in stuff that you might want to fertilize fields with, and you'll be like a swimmer trying to get away from it. So we're going to hand out these scriptures, and Justin will pick up for us. But you remember when we told you this is going to be a war story like none other? Yeah. Well, we mean it, because this is God's war story in the finality of the matter. There, really, there has never been a conflict quite like when he decides to put it to an end. Yeah. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. David Hall. Joel 3, 9 through 17. Mario. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Gabriel Arias. We're going to do, yes, Revelation with no S. <laughs> A singular revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ that he made known to John by sending his angel. Habibi, you should get Exodus 15, 13 through 18. Yes. Now before we read these, that's it. Before we read these... You're going to want to write these scriptures down, okay? Because these are going to help you understand a lot of key passages in the Bible. Call How them out. How many of you have been interested in the Battle of Armageddon? Absolutely. Yeah, it's much better than a Bruce Willis movie, I'm telling you. All right? If you understand these passages, you're going to understand a whole lot about biblical eschatology. So who's got Isaiah 63, 1 through 6? Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with this garment stained crimson? Hold on right there. Who is this coming from Edom? Where is Edom on that map? Bottom right-hand corner. Who is that coming from the east? From Edom, from Basra. And by the way, there is still a town in that area called Basra. Funny enough, you think they would try to change the name knowing what's going to happen there. Yeah, I would. Because someone is coming with this garment stained in crimson. Keep reading. Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? Woo! It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. <laughs> Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? Good question. I have trod the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was... Now hold right there. 
He's saying, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. Why, is, why does the person coming from Basra feel the need to say that? Because he wants you to know that he did not have any help from the nations or the nation's gods. It was him alone, and that was showing his dominance over all of the gods that he was about to trod on. Keep reading. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spatters my garments. And I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Man, what we see is an extremely awesome picture here of a person mighty to save, a redeemer, coming from Basra, and his garments are stained with blood. Now, a lot of us can think of Jesus in the moment, but why do we do that? Because there is a New Testament passage that parallels this. We don't often think of Jesus stained with blood, though, do we? That's because we don't properly see him as the Davidic son. We don't properly understand and we don't grasp with who that Messiah is. You have to understand David if you want to understand what the Messiah will do when he returns a second time and who he is. David was a warrior. In fact, when men went to battle against David, they were warned, don't do it. David's been a warrior from his youth. It's not a good idea. And as we've been learning in the last weeks, David and Jesus are almost synonymous. What you see in David, you see in the son of David. Yeah. Remember, this is related to both the nations mentioned and their gods. That's an important note that you want to tuck away. Who's got Joel 3, 9 through 17? I, we, I gotta interrupt you. I'm sorry. You ever grow up in church hearing the song, Let the Weakling Say I'm Strong? Yeah. This is God taunting the nations, going, Come on, man, rouse yourself because I'm ready for a fight. Suddenly that song becomes very inappropriate. I'll just get revelation. Keep going. Okay, keep reading, brother. Well, keep going. Wow. Something happened in the heavenlies. Keep going. Come 
Now get out of your head that you can't figure out where these people are anymore, that this is all just to be allegorized. The writers of the New Testament didn't think that. They saw David as the type of Messiah. And all of the passages about the Lord's coming that the apostles quote, they are passages of historic regional enemies that David defeated. And they're saying that Jesus will do it again. So often when you ask a group of Christians, why is Jesus' garment stained with blood? They're like, because he was crucified. No, no, friends. That is not why. Context, I mean, context. Read your Bible. It is not why. Read Psalm 58. You'll find out that that blood gets on us too. That is not because he is a violent warlord king. That is because there have been six millennia of rebellions against him by that time. And he has only gleaned those who are willing to come to him. And all others will suffer an eternal fate at that point. Chronicles is showing us the height of David's reign. And that foreshadows the coming of Jesus Christ. No foreign oppression and no foreign gods. Every time you look at these prophetic passages, there's always signs in the heavens. Because to the ancient man, and not because they were archaic, they were more enlightened than our crowd today. They understood that if Yahweh acts against the people on earth, he is first acting against their gods in the heavens. The exodus was actually a judgment of the gods of Egypt before it ever killed an Egyptian. And by the way, in every one of these cases, just like the exodus, not every member of that nation suffers that fate. There is always a remnant that goes with the people of God and becomes redeemed with them. We are a remnant in here today that are not Israel, except one Jew in the back. Instead, we're like Ittai the Gittite. We picked up our sword and guys, if there's going to be a fight, I want to be on the winning side. That's, that's essentially it. That sounds like spoils of war. Yeah, we're the spoils of war. Pick up in Revelation 19 and we're going to see this continue. Pause there. Lenton, will you read verse 14 of our text tonight? One more time for me. David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. Saints, do you think that's supposed to draw to mind something? The introduction that Christ is given, riding on this white horse, faithful and true, with justice he judges and makes war. With that kind of justice, that kind of faithfulness, that kind of righteousness, consider the verses as Gabriel keeps reading. Many crowns. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. <laughs> he wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Woo! Saints, based upon what we've just read, what is that robe dipped in? Blood. But whose? And he is called the Word of God. These two things are not in conflict. In fact, it is what the Torah was aiming at in a fulfillment where his people are delivered of every other nation and their gods. Keep reading, brother. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from 
mouth, so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He also tramples the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. Saints, you're good. This covers so many different prophecies. This relates to Psalm 2. It relates to Genesis 49. This is the fulfillment of the picture of Israel's Messiah coming in. Did you catch where it said that he had many crowns upon his head? That he's going, think about Psalm 2 imagery, where we're ruling with an iron scepter, and what does he do? He dashes the nations to pieces like pottery. This is their God coming in, and us included with him, as the Savior of the world from the nations that are disobedient, from the gods that have been in rebellion, from the powers of this dark world that the writers of the gospel spoke about. Read our last verse together. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, come on, man. What are we King of? King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Saints, all too often we read that text and we... We look with such narrow eyes, such shallow eyes from a biblical context. This is not just speaking about the king that was in Aram. It is speaking about the king of Aram and the principality that's been there for a thousand years and a thousand years, constantly wanting to fight his people. And he's saying, in the end of the days, I'm going to be king of kings. I will be lord of all lords. This is shown through his dominance over these nations and his great love for his people and us Gentiles that have been included with it. This is a day that we long to be along his side. Just like seeing your father coming when you've been in trouble. You've been in a situation where the whole world is longing for this. Romans speaks about the creation being an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Well, saints, this is what it will look like in its fullness. When our father comes with us as his sons, having been grafted in, having been born to a new family, and revealed with eyes like blazing fire, with crowns upon his head, and a robe that is dipped in our oppressor's blood. When he says king of kings, think king of all earthly kings. But when he says lord of lords, now that, if you were going to say king of kings in in Hebrew, you you would express it as malak of malak, king over kings. But when you say lord over lord, That would be Adonai over other Adonais. Okay? Now, the reason that I'm saying that is while that could be an earthly master, if you just get out an Englishman's concordance and look at it, all too often it's talking about spiritual powers, not earthly powers. From the top of the creation to the bottom of the creation, Jesus is exalted above all. The only thing that he's not above is the Father who put everything under him. And that's because Jesus is a glorified man. Mankind rises above all things that God created and is the ruling agency of the creation to the extent that God dwells inside of you. Now, Revelation 19.11 is an incredible passage. It's one of my favorites. But this has been prophesied to Israel ever since they came out of the Exodus. Do you want to see it? This is in Exodus 15. This is the... The famous passage where God is a man of war. The first time he's called that in scripture. This is Exodus 15, 13 through 18. And I want to read it to you. (laughs) In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. 
and your strength. You will guide them to your holy dwelling. The nations will hear and tremble. Anguish will grip the people of Philistia. Philistia? The chiefs of Edom will be terrified. The leaders of Moab will be seized with trembling. The people of Canaan will melt away. Terror and dread will fall upon them. By the power of your arm, they will be as still as a stone until your people pass by, O Lord, until the people you have brought pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, your hands established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. I got to interrupt for a minute. (laughs) They haven't been to the mountain of the Lord yet. We're not talking about Sinai. There is no sanctuary built yet. We're not talking about something on earth. But there is a day coming when the mountain of the Lord that is there and the sanctuary that is there will kiss the mountain that is here and the sanctuary that is here and they will become one. They also have not had battles with the Philistines yet. But Moses knew they would. Mm. You mean we, read those five, we read those four nations, four or five nations. Did you see that those are the same nations that are mentioned in 1 Chronicles 18? Yes. There's a reason for that. We're about to go into 1 Chronicles 19. But when you're reading 1 Chronicles 18, you do well to see the shadows and types of Jesus in 1 Chronicles 18 here. This was prophesied from the beginning, and it will be fulfilled. Of course, we would like to get into this more, but we have the confidence that your ability to look into these things you will go out and study it. So something fun for you to do on your own time. Because it's 824 and we're going to keep moving forward. But from the beginning to the end, we have the same battle being depicted that God will prove faithful and victorious over. I imagine that a scholar with a little bit of time looking through the Psalms, looking through other writings, you might begin to find details of this picture being described because it is from the beginning To the end, all the way through the word, this has been his plan to redeem his people. Are you all ready to get into chapter 19? Let me just take one more shot because I can. (laughs) Russia is not in view here. Hal Lindsey was wrong. (laughs) The people of God are not off of the planet. Tim LaHaye was wrong. The consistent biblical story is Israel is the center of the map. And who we are talking about are the regional enemies of Israel. They're not enemies because Israel wants them to be. They're enemies because they resent what God is doing in Israel. And it's the same today. It's the same today. Let's pick up in verse 19 or chapter 19. Yeah, Linton, get one through four for us. And then just work your way through it. Read it. Break Hush, king of the Ammonites died, and his son succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Hanan, Nahash, because, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to Hanun in the land of the Ammonites to express sympathy to him, the Ammonite, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Having his men come to come to you to explore and spy out the country and overthrow it, so Hanun seized David's men, shaved them, cut off their garments at the no. in the middle, at the buttocks, oh. and took them away. So, 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 
This evening, fortunately, I still have my pants. I was not quite able to join these men with their handsome, gorgeous beards. But fortunately, the son of David gives time for things to grow. Let's just say Judah would be at Jericho for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Judah, Judah, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Look, there's a lot in this text, and we are aiming to get to the 20th chapter for a reason. The word prince in the Bible is very often uh, a spiritual power. Sometimes it's an earthly power being controlled by a spiritual power. What made the princes of this kingdom suspicious of David's intentions when there had only been good deeds that were displayed? I would suggest to you that that's because there was spiritual interference. But this humorous story is all too often indicative of something else. It's indicative of the way that emissaries of Jesus are treated around the world now. Our king only wants to show kindness, but his ambassadors are often met with contempt and humiliation. That's not simply a cultural misunderstanding. That is because there are powers over those lost nations and they don't want to let the people go. So they're whispering in their ears about your intentions. That's why we're in jail when we're in Turkey all of the time. That's why I've been banned from the nation of India. It's not because we did anything wrong. We actually brought food and help and healing. It's because something is lying in officials' ears. Let's pick up in verse 5. Someone came and told David about the men. He sent messengers to meet them, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't care about their their uniforms. (laughs) We have to assume they got new uniforms there in Jericho, too. But we want to call to mind here, you remember our study in Samuel. Jericho was the place of Israel's first victories. And the king tells those men to stay at Jericho until their beards have grown back. Well, obviously, they needed to have beards on their faces. But one thing that the king probably wanted them to do is be at the place where Israel got its first victories. We want to remind you of how important it is to meditate on the first victories that God gave you. In a time where you feel embarrassed or shamed because the enemy might have gotten one up on you. You have to remember the victories God gave you at first. And that is a time of victory. Amen. We're going to have to verse 6. Yeah. When the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, the nun and the Ammonites sent a thousand pounds of silver to hire chariots and charioteers from around Naharim, around Mahat and Zobah. They hired 32,000 chariots and charioteers, as well as the king of Makkah with his troops, who came and camped at Mediba, while the Ammonites were mustered from their towns and moved for battle. Saints, we're not trying to be overly brief this evening, but you can go back through all of our Samuel teachings and we cover this in depth. We have a huge number of men who are here to fight. We can just talk on and on about a stench in his nostrils, meaning how Hebrews looked at anger, how somebody was flared up because of actions, what silver should be used for. But we don't want to get dogged down in military details this evening. Just as a note, they should have given that money to David as a peace offering, like the guy that we read about in verse 9. All they had to do was entreat the son, kiss him, him, lest he be angry, and we could have have a different result. If all of the money 
all of the effort, all of the animosity that is poured into resisting the gospel were poured into embracing it, then we would have the millennial reign right now. <laughs> On another note, these general regions, what is being described right now extends as far north up that map as into Turkey. Now, when we're talking about northern powers and you're reading in Daniel, you're reading about these things that are going to take place, the biblical map is in that region. This is a hint towards Magog. This is a hint towards the actual northern kingdoms that Israel has always been at war with and their king is coming to deliver them from. We want to encourage you to go back over these battles. Read through them. You will start to look at them from a different light with the whole backdrop that we just read to you about him treading this out. Go look at a map that is historical and go pull up Google Earth. Take a look at the plan of God and how it actually relates to our modern day. Linton, we're going to pick back up and let's read 8 through 13. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up battle for drew up battle formations at the entrance to their city, while the kings who had come were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that, the, that their battle lines were in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of his best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai's brother, and they were deployed against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to rescue me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will rescue you. Be strong and let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Now, I, I, there are times I don't like Abishai very much in the, in the Bible. He yields to his brother. He does some things that he should not do. And I like Joab even less. But when the chronicler is writing about them, he presents only the good that they did. And I got to tell you, there's something very inspiring here. We, uh, we put it on our wall. I need my brothers and my brothers need me. Yeah. If we are truly fighting the Lord's battles, then each other's battles are also our battles. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. They looked at the enemy's strategy and it took two of them to match it. I would encourage you to involve other people in your lives. The longer you stay separated from true, transparent, intimate fellowship with the body of Christ, the more vulnerable you are to never accomplishing the will of God and being completely defeated yourself. But let's pick up in verse 14. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. Amen. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they too fled before his brother Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab went back to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they sent messengers and had Arameans brought from beyond the river with Shophak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When, when David was told of this, he gathered all Israel and crossed the Jordan. He advanced against them and formed his battle lines opposite them. David formed his lines to meet the Arameans in battle, and they fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and, the, and David killed 7,000 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also killed Shophak, the commander of their army. When the vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with David. 
and became subject to him. Yeah, good plan. So the Arameans were not willing to help the, Ar- the Ammonites anymore. <laughs> and there's so many meat here. There's so much meat that we can get into. I love the fact that when David was told of this, he gathered all of Israel. He didn't waste any time when he heard about what was happening. He went to war. Over and over, what you'll also see, you see how they made peace with David and became subject to him? You see that over and over through these two passages. It's almost like it's giving us a picture that at Jesus' second return, he is defeating enemies and the remnants are becoming subject to him. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there's something you've got to capture here. You're reading David's successes over and over and over again. In fact, it actually looks like David never had any failures here. You're reading about all of his triumphs and about how he is conquering people and they're becoming subject to him. But, you know, there's one thing that is not written in here that we need to discuss. The very next verse, in verse 1 of chapter 20, I'll read it. In the spring at time, at the time when kings go off to war, Joab led out the armed forces. David went out in the previous chapter, but now at a time when kings go off to war, Joab is leading them out. Does this call to mind a particular passage that was gripping to us? Yes. Yeah, this is the exact passage that David is about to stay home and see Bathsheba. This is one of the most crushing circumstances in David's life. But you, you know what Chronicles doesn't include? His failure. Chronicles does not include that failure one bit. Come In on. fact, what Chronicles is for is to chronicle the promise. Amen. And if you remember, Ezra's writing after exile, and he's chronicling the promise through all of everything that that promise had to withstand. Now, there's a beautiful message in that for you. I mean, that ought to be more encouraging. That little redaction ought to be more encouraging to you than your acting life. Personal failures that are properly repented from do not become a part of your story. Idolatry or failing to do what God has told you to do, that will remain part of your story before the Bema Seed of Christ. You will give an account for that for every deed done in the body, whether good or bad, when that is the context. Personal failures are not excusable But if they're repented from, then they are redacted from your story. However, the worship of foreign gods, the bowing down to other powers besides Yahweh, that will not be forgiven. And you, you you need to grab hold of that. The chronicler wants you to know you can overcome a personal failure. You cannot overcome failing to do God's will. It's almost like the promise preserves our life. So if you stand faithful, if you repent of your failures rightly, your promise will preserve your life. And in the light, at the end of your life, what will be remembered about you is the promise God gave you and how you walked in it. As we enter into 20, we have a lot of ground to cover. Yes. And we're excited about it. I can't help but notice, though, as much as we want to teach on theological concepts, it's an issue in the room that I think the Holy Spirit wants to emphasize. Your personal failings are redeemable. You ignoring God's will for your life because something else is more comfortable will see you damned. Whether or not you live an openly immoral life. The guy off at the bar that is doing something openly wicked but not claiming to be serving the Lord is in a better state than those that claim to serve the Lord but ignore His will 
and do not accomplish it in their lifetime. I want you to consider what we're about to read in light of that. Linton, will you get 20 through verse 2 for me? In the springtime, in the spring, at the time when kings go off the wars, Joab led out the armed forces. He laid waste the land of the Ammonites and went to Rabbah and besieged it. But David remained in Jerusalem. Joab, uh, Joab attacked Rabbah and left it in ruins. David took the crown from the head of their kings. Its weight was found to be a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones. And it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city. Hold there. Saints, there is no such thing as a pretty good old boy. You either serve one kingdom or another. We have a slide to show you the distinction that the Davidic king is making here. We have the Good News translation. We have the contemporary English version. Today's English version. The complete Jewish version. Most of your Bibles in the room, there's going to be a footnote about the Ammonite king. We want to suggest to you this evening that there's a sort of double entendre at play in the Hebrew here. That these translations, as well as several others, are going to translate this verse differently than your NIV, than your NASB will, or even your ESV. The Ammonite idol, Molech. The next translation, later David himself went to Rabbah, where he took the crown from the statue of their god, Milko. The Ammonite idol, Molech, had a crown. And our last translation, David took the crown off Milko's head. Thanks, this evening we don't have time to go through all of the intricacies of this. It has to do with Hebrew vowel points that are not in the original text. Whether you treat it as just the king, Melech, or you treat it as the god's name, It's clearly trying to emphasize that there's something more at play than just an earthly king's crown. There is an earthly king, and they did put him to death. But he represents something more in this crown that is associated with something other than the king of England. It's associated with their God and their one true king of the wicked nation. And what does this son of David decide to do with it is what we want to take a look at. We're going to hand out a few passages so that we can... uh, We don't want to get into Hebrew syntax at this time. We do that kind of stuff all the time, and it's fun. But there's at least two major problems with reading this just as the king of uh, the region. The crown's 75 pounds. How does the man wear that around? The second one is, if those kings wore a crown that was 75 pounds, wearing it around, and then David puts it on, is he expected to wear it for uh, a 75-pound crown? That's not the issue here. The issue is that the crown was actually on a figurine of Molech, which could bear a 75-pound crown. Why is it then mentioned to be on the head of David? He wanted to take it off of the the head of Molech and wear it in a symbolic gesture, not as a lifetime movement, a symbolic gesture that literally says... Molech is no longer God over this region. I am the Molech that God has chosen, and I wear this crown. It's a picture of Jesus Christ in every way. And to go through the grammar involved in this requires this name to be read as a compound word that is more complicated than we wanted to get into. But we can help you understand the significance of this by looking at some other passages. Saints, you remember reading in Revelation 19 earlier? Where he saw the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, but he had many crowns upon his head? 1 Samuel 26, 17 through 20. Brenton. 
Second Kings 5, 15 through 18. Brandon. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Who's going to get that one? Steve Thomas. Genesis 8, 15 through 17. Daniel Cho. Genesis 9, verse 4. Avambola. Genesis 11, 3 through 9. Ibrahim, we're going to give you another one since yours got stolen. Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Daniel Smith. Then we'll hand out some more after that. Look, how many of you are interested in the unseen realm? How many of you would like to know about these lesser Elohims? How many of you would like to know the origin of demonic spirits? How many of you would like to have a better picture of what's going on all around you that you can't see? Well, that's where we're going, so I would suggest you rouse yourself. So let's do 1 Samuel 26, verse 17. 1 Samuel 26, 17. Wrong spot, sorry. 26, 17. Then Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord the king. And he also said, Why then is my lord pursuing his servant? For what have I done? Or what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please let my lord the king listen to the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is men, cursed are they before the lord. For they have driven me out today, so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Wow. Wow. Verse 20. Now then, do not let my blood fall to the ground, away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to search for a single fleet, just as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Wow. Then Saul said... No, 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 you got it. (laughs) Just for 20. This is such an awkward passage if you don't understand the worldview of the Israelites. And I'm not suggesting that their worldview was wrong. I'm actually suggesting that it's right and we're wrong. Repeatedly, David is saying things like, if... If men have told you to do this, then they're damned. If, if Yahweh, if our God has told you to do this, then I'll make some kind of offering. Because you driving me out of the one place on the planet that is Yahweh's inheritance is like telling me I must serve the gods of other nations since I'm not standing on Yahweh's dirt. I'm standing on the dirt that belongs to the other gods. This is a big problem. David believed that the land of Israel was the land of Israel's God. To be driven away from the land was to be driven away from the God of the land. Living in exile was living under the dominion of other gods. And this text makes that explicit if you will just embrace it. So who's got 2 Kings 5, 15 through 17? 17. Then David and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept this thing. <laughs> and even though David urged him, he refused. If you will not, said David, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make bird offerings sacrifices to any other God. Now many of you know this story. 
Naaman comes all the way from Damascus in Syria. And he hears about a prophet named Elisha. And he has leprosy. He goes to Elisha. He tells him to cleanse in the Jordan. He gets cleansed from his leprosy. And what's the one thing he wants to take back with him to Syria? He wants to take some Israeli dirt so that he can take it with him and he can worship. Isn't it crazy that even Gentile Naaman seemed to understand that to properly worship the God of Israel, he should be standing on the land of Israel. He wanted to take it with him. He understood that you had to stand in the land to worship the God of the land. Now, either Naaman understood this innately or Elisha helped him gain this understanding. I think Elisha helped him. Where did this biblical worldview originate? Why was it important for David, the king of Israel, by the will of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to wear a crown associated with Molech? Why was that important? It's important because no other God than Yahweh should be in Yahweh's land. That is why David wants to show dominance over that God. To understand this, we have to go back to the biblical narrative. And we're going to go in Genesis 6. I want to interject something for Genesis 6. This is not to say that God is not God over the whole world. He is. But he first starts with one specific group of people. And when he has accomplished his will in them, then the whole world is affected by it. If he never accomplishes his will in them, then none of the rest of the world will be affected by it. That is central to the Bible story. And it's why God is not done with Israel. Satan is not done with Israel. And you should not be done with Israel. Saints, we're about to cover some building blocks that connect. You have to get A to get to B to get to C. So listen attentively and we're going to work through these quickly together. Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Who's got it? Saints, God is saying that he is grieved over the state of his creation. You see hyperbole used in the word. But we're saying is that the vast majority everywhere, except for some very specific family, he is pained with how overwhelmingly wicked they've become. Saints, this is chapter 6. The garden was in chapter 3. This is how quickly as man spread out upon the earth, Wickedness multiplied alongside them, and God is watching this. Keep going, brother. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds in the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes. Woo-hoo! Praise God for that very last verse. The world had rebelled against Yahweh. Everywhere that he looked, other than Noah and his family, there was nothing but wickedness and rebellion. We get to the place where he's just done with it. Later we're going to find out that they were aided in this wickedness and rebellion by Benah Ha Elohim. There was some kind of spiritual force at work inside of this causing this rebellion to be fomented that much more. God decides to do a kind of reboot, a clean slate, wipes it out entirely. Because it has gotten so bad that he needs to start yet again with just one family. And he chooses to start again with Noah. Genesis 8.
bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply upon the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So when the eight people get off the ark, they represent all of mankind. And the Adamic call was restated to them. Multiply all over the earth. Go increase. They're the image bearers of God. And that's what they're supposed to bring to the whole world. But watch where it goes. Genesis 9.4. Genesis 9.4. But you must not eat meat that has its life blood still in it. Get verse 11 for us. Yeah, we wrote that wrong. I established my covenant with you. Never again would all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again would there be a flood to destroy the earth. So after God decides to reboot, he makes a promise. Yahweh promised never to flood the earth again to deal with the mass rebellion of mankind and the angelic realm that helped with the problem. But the 10th chapter of Genesis is dedicated to explaining how the 70 nations came into being in the world. Noah's sons, they grew into the 70 nations, the nations, the 70 men of the world. And the next scene after that is another mass rebellion. That's Genesis 11, 3 through 9. A lot of rebellion, a lot of multiplying. Genesis 11, 3 through 9. Who's got it? Nobody? They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, heavens. so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Heavens, not being scattered, making a name for yourself. Remember those things. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they will plan will be impossible for them. When he says this, he's not speaking about righteousness. He's speaking about the extent to which they can carry on wickedness together. Man, there are a lot of different kinds of crowds that you can bond around. He is dispersing something here as we continue because it was founded upon rebellion. This is the second time we begin to see men gathering together like this. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. Some have speculated that happened in Chennai, India. We know that's not quite the truth, though. (laughs) No, it's between the two rivers in the land of Babylonia. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. We promise we're not going to Babylon tonight. Because the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Saints, I want you to catch that last line. This is not dispersing just a small locality. This is not some kind of racial mixing plan where we're taking people from one city and bussing them over. This is a dispersion across the entire earth. Men have been trying to mix things up. We've been trying to unify around so many different things. In fact, what God separated us over was our common bond towards rebellion. Pick up. This is the second time that we've reached this, and we're still in the first few chapters of Genesis. The Tower of Babel was the second time mankind, the nations, had rejected Yahweh's rule over the whole earth. Immediately afterwards, the biblical text shows God forming a nation, 
that did not exist in Genesis 10 and was not part of the 70 nations. He called one separately for himself. I've surveyed all of humanity in Genesis 6, and I don't like it. Wipe them out. There's one family that we can keep. After the flood, all of humanity has disobeyed again, and I can't wipe them out because I said I wouldn't, and I put this nifty little Roy G. Biv in the sky that queers would later put on their flag. So there must be another solution. And here it comes. Genesis 12, 1 through 2. Who's going to read it? Good job, Nolan. I don't think so. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Now, we've been through this before many times. God picked one man from the general area that the Tower of Babel was in, the site of the previous rebellion. And he said, get away from all of them. Don't worry about where you're going. I'll show you where you're going. And by the way, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a nation. I'm going to judge all of the other nations based on how they treat you. This is the beginning of the hint that God had chosen one nation, and his work in that nation would be how he judged all other nations. Now we need to fast forward to Moses' day. Is that all right? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to put this one on a screen. (laughs) So this is Moses speaking to the one nation. What What we want you to focus in on right here in the first verse. He says, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Now most of us just read that and say, wow, Moses is just wants to make a loud statement and speak to everybody. No, he's speaking to those two for a specific reason. He's saying, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. Why is he doing that? Because there's a problem going on. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. He then goes on for the next seven verses in Deuteronomy 32 to detail the faithlessness of mankind while he extols the virtues of Yahweh. He's talking about the faithlessness of everyone while lifting up The one God who is above the rest. And then he starts to reference the Tower of Babel incident. And that is what we see in the second section, verse 8 through 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind. You see how he gave nations an inheritance there? When he divided mankind, when did he do that? At the Tower of Babel. He fixed the borders of the peoples. According to the number of the sons of God, the Benai Ha'elohim. But the Lord's portion, pay attention to this, the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What we see here is that the nations were given an inheritance. Every nation got an inheritance. What is that inheritance? Well, you're going to find out here in a second. Mankind was divided into separate groups, they had borders. This was all done according to the number of the Benai Ha'elohim. Do you see that in verse 8? According to the number of the sons of God? That's Benai Ha'elohim. The nation's inheritance was, you don't want Yahweh? Go serve the other spiritual powers that Yahweh created, but were not necessarily pure. 
Those results were disastrous. Oh, yeah. There were gods that messed everything up in creation. There were spiritual entities. And God gave those nations over to those spiritual entities. And that's how he divided them. That's how we get 70 nations. That's how we get 70 Benaiha Elohim. This is very similar to the first two chapters of Romans. Where because of man's depravity, he gave them over to sensuality. He gave them over to the thing that they wanted. So that they would receive in themselves the due penalty for their sin. Except he's doing it on a global scale. Think a father with 70 sons that says, listen... You don't want me as your father. You are disinherited. I will raise up another son. And the only one of your 70 who have children, the only one of them that will have any shot is if they recognize the rule of my new son. All of those 70 nations went astray. So God chose a nation for himself. One of the smallest, one of the weakest and most dependent. He chose that nation for himself. That only one nation was the portion of the Lord. That was his portion. That one nation was the inheritance or the heritage of the Lord. It belongs to him. It is what he says he inherits. It's his. Now, it's interesting to know that the book of Jashar, have you guys heard of the book of Jashar? We heard about it in our Chronicles teachings. The book of Jashar mentions 70 benai. Ha-Elohim present at the Tower of Babel. One corresponding to each nation. We're going to show that on the, on the screen. Now, Judah's going to read this in just a second. I want to tell you, we're not quoting apocryphal books as if they were scripture. But what they do is they tell you what is in the mind and the culture of the people. In other words, every detail may not be right, but it is the discussion that people are having. After they built the tower and the city, and they did this thing, Daily, until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost or first before him, to those who were near him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor. And they did so unto them. Saints, again, we're not saying that this is scripture. We're saying that this is historical backdrop to the mind of the reader. When they are reading about this passage, this is commentary, if you will, about what happened at Babel. That lends insight into what the original writer and the first century, first century audience would have heard when they read it. Now, lest you think we're just going to rest our points on apocryphal books, we're going to move into Deuteronomy now, where you'll find that it's grounded in the scripture as well. Deuteronomy 4, 19 through 20, my father will tell you about it and I'm going to read it. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the heavenly array, think back to yesterday's sermon, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping the things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. That's their inheritance, not yours, Israel. But as for you... The Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace, out of Egypt, to be the people of his inheritance as you are now. To understand this, we want to teach you a couple of words. So let's put the first one on the screen. Collect. You can read that as well as I can, but the part that I I wanted to share with you is that halak is really a part of... The spoils of war, or as this particular dictionary puts it, a part of booty or spoil. In other words, 
Israel was God's because God had won them in warfare with the other heavenly powers. It's not the only word that he uses to describe them. Look at your next one. Nachalah. This word implies property that was given by means of will or as a heritage, which is why the ESV says that Jacob is God's heritage. These thoughts carry all the way through the Newer Testament, and we preached about them yesterday, so I don't want to do it again today other than to show you how prolific it is in the Bible. Justin, show them 1 Kings 8. For you singled them out from all the nations of the world to be your own inheritance, just as you declared through your servant Moses when you, O sovereign Lord, brought our fathers out of Egypt. Look, you tend to think that heaven is your inheritance, that God is your inheritance. That is not how the Bible speaks about it. The glorified man that will rule over all creation in the body of Messiah, that is God's heritage. There was a problem in the heavens and there was a problem in the earth and God said, you know what my heritage will be? I will disassociate myself from these other spiritual powers that I created. I will disassociate myself from the 70 nations that are following them. I will raise up my own nation and they and those who align with them will be my heritage as they rule the creation. Yahweh let the disobedient nations go their own way. If you don't believe me, read Acts 14, 15 through 17. Paul says it verbatim. He let all nations go their own way. If you still don't believe me, everything is is established by two or more witnesses. Read the discourse in Acts 17, 29 through 31, and you'll find Paul, a Jewish apostle, telling Gentiles, in the past, God let you go your own way, but now he is calling you to repentance. Okay, this is because the nations were disobedient and the Benai Ha Elohim were disobedient. So Yahweh focused on only one nation as his inheritance. This next slide are 14 occurrences in the Tanakh where God says point blank, Israel is my spoil of war, my heritage, mine and mine alone, not to be shared with other gods. No other nation is. What I do on the earth, I will do through them. How sad it is that so much Christian theology distances itself from Israel. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Bible. Sadder still, people that see that Israel is important, but redefine us as Israel. You are not. You are simply remnants of the other nation that attach to Israel's destiny. Amen. I would encourage everybody in this room to get a picture of that and go through them. Yahweh addresses the errors of lesser gods and his displeasure with them. And you don't need a Hebrew degree to understand this because the ESV translates it in a way that you will get it. Psalm 82, picking up in verse 1 in the ESV. God has taken his place in the divine council. You remember hearing these things yesterday. He has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Wait, who is he talking to? 
He's talking to Elohims, lesser gods. The God of Israel is the most high God, the only God worth worshiping, the only one that deserves your honor. We are monotheistic, not polytheistic, but we are not so simple as to believe there are no other spiritual powers. There is one that is the creator of all things, but that is not who India is serving right now. So he asked them a question. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Then he gives them a commandment. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the needy. Uh, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They were entrusted with governing the nations. They were intended to govern as God would see fit as his ambassador, as his vassal state, if you will. And he's charging them with the fact that they have not carried out their duties in a way that he expected it to be done. You can think even about some of the parables in the Gospels where certain talents were entrusted and the master expected them to be handled a certain way. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any common prince. Think about Daniel 10, verse 13. Daniel 10, 20 and 21. These are princes of nations that are being charged for their misconduct of God's people. He created them and he created the heavens and he set rulers over them to lead them towards himself and they have failed in their task. Arise, O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. This is Yahweh's declaration against the gods. It is also a declaration of war to reclaim the disinherited nations. He's saying, I'm not going to let you do this forever. There is a day coming when I'm going to take them back. And I will set all things right when I do. Amen. Yahweh is the judge of the whole earth. But he has a specific people that is his inheritance that he starts this plan with. Now, before we get into our next sections, and I hope, I hope you're appreciating the level of depth that there is in this teaching. It's important to understand that many translations obscure this. They make it sound like he's speaking to Israel. Israel is not in the divine council, and Israel is not Elohim's. The reason that those translations do that is because the bias of the translator disassociates spiritual things. The Dead Sea Scrolls date to within a hundred years either way of Jesus. They all say the same thing. Benai Ha Elohim, sons of God. Now, this gets incredibly important to how you read the rest of the Bible. Before we pick back up in our text, David took a crown associated with Molech, one of those lesser Elohims. It weighed 75 pounds. He wore it briefly to show Yahweh's dominance over specific Benai Ha Elohim. He's showing dominance over a, a spiritual power that led an entire nation into idolatry. David is foreshadowing not only the king above all earthly kings, but the man that God would raise to be Lord over all lords, spiritual powers. Let's pick up in verse 3, and it's about to get real in here. 
If that wasn't deep for you, we're, 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 about, we're about to go to the Marianas Trench. And brought out and brought out the people who were, who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and iron picks and axes. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. In the course of time, war broke out with the Philistines at Gizim. At that time, Sibachai, the Hushathite, killed Sibai, one of the descendants of the Rephaites. One of the descendants of the who? Yes. Yes. All right, let's keep going. Remember that. And the Philistines were subjugated. In another battle with the Philistines, Elhanan, son of Jair, killed Lamai, son of the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, mm. who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. Wow. He also was descended from Rapha. From who? Rapha. Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shimei, David's brother, killed him. These were the descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. Mm. So here is the end of chapter 20. I want you to glean something here. The next chapter after this is chapter 21. Chapter 21 is technically really the end of a story and picking up in a new story. Chapter 21 next week is going to be about David, the census, and how, how the angel was had a plague and how David runs and stops and buys a ruinous threshing floor. So this is technically at the very end, and Ezra's including a few details here for a very specific reason. Why do you think Ezra is ending this section while talking about killing Rephaim? I mean, next week we're going to go into something that leads us in, in, in a very strong direction. But Ezra wants you to know that before we get on to that, David is doing something here that signifies something. Why is he talking about killing Rephaim? First, we're going to get to the obvious, and then we will deal with the more important but less obvious. I want to show you a slide here, and we're going to talk about David's five stones. David's five stones. You remember the shepherd boy picked up more than one stone when he went out to go meet yep. Goliath. Yep. That's because Goliath had relatives. We have four other brothers, one of which that is not named, that are struck down in this passage. Abisha saves David's life by killing one of them. Sibachiah kills another one. Elhanah kills another one. Jonathan, David's nephew, kills one that is unnamed. There are remaining members of the Rephites. Goliath is not just a one-off. This is a worldwide problem that has been plaguing the earth that our Davidic king is now putting to death very physically as he is marching around the wine press. And the writer wants you to understand that he not only dealt with the earthly kings, he dealt with these other half-breeds that were in his territory. So that's the obvious. That's the obvious. Would you all like to go to the less obvious? I like the fact, by the way, that David picked up five stones and only got to use one. So he was looking for the opportunity to get to the other four. I wish there were more Christians that had that kind of total victory mentality. The less obvious. Let's go back to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 6. And we're going to put one through four in the ESV on the screen for you. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, 
and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. That's polite language. That's not quite how that is said. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. It's important to know that there is a contrast in this passage. Daughters of men is benot ha-adam. It's speaking of human beings that were born of other human beings. It is meant to be contrasted with benai ha-elohim, here translated sons of God. We had daughters from mankind and we had spiritual beings that were the offspring of God. The passage is clearly describing an interference from spiritual beings into the human race. I have a couple slides for you here. I, I think, I hope. If not, I'll tell you. There we go. No, we can do that too. I'll tell you about the slides that I didn't give to the sound booth. This angelic view that I'm talking to you about, it is the traditional view of the rabbinic literature. It is exactly what the book of Enoch says. It is what the testimony of the 12 patriarchs, a Jewish document, says. It is what Josephus Flavius says. And it is what the Septuagint says. You have to get 400 years past Jesus for anybody to have a, a different view that was held in any regard. Wow. You had to get to a time when people no longer accepted that the supernatural world intersected with ours. The angelic view that I'm talking about was held by church fathers. Philo of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Athenagoras, Tertullian, Lactantius, Amros, and Julian. They all espouse that what I'm saying about Genesis 6 is true. In other words, this was the only orthodox view until more modern Times. Now, this gets up to be a lot of fun. The word Nephilim in this passage, a good lexicon will tell you it means the fallen ones. A better lexicon will tell you that it comes from the root word Nephal, which means to fall, to be cast down, to fall away, or to desert. The offspring of these heavenly beings and earthly women were described with this term. They're also called Ha-Giborim, mighty ones, warriors. When the Jews translated the Hebrew text for the Greek-speaking world in the year 300 B.C., they replaced the word Nephilim with gigantes, giants. That's not because the average Israelite was short and these people happened to be moderately taller. 
They wanted the Greek world to understand this corresponds to what you think of as giants. Now, while it's called giants, the root word for gigantes is gigas, which means earthborn. Something of the heavens commingled with something on the earth. It was born on the earth, but was a fallen hybrid creation. This word gigas is where we get, it, it is the same word as genages, which is used in Greek mythology to describe titans. It is also where we get the modern terms genetics or genes from. In other words, everything about this passage has to do with the crossing of species that God did not want to cross. Which really sets up something interestingly. Additionally, these gibberim, these mighty, fallen, hybrid warriors are said to be men of renown. Somebody say renown. Renown. This is going to connect with several other passages in interesting ways. So if we have a slide here that gives you the Hebrew word for name, it's Shem. It is a masculine noun meaning a name or fame. To make a name for oneself means to attain a renowned reputation. What these, men, what these hybrid things are doing is they want to make a name for themselves. That's interesting when we get to the next passage. Because what's happening in Genesis 11, 4, these men are saying, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They were wanting to make a name for themselves. They were men of renown. And why? Because they had some teachers, some hybrid, nasty teachers. In both of the mass rebellions in mankind, there was an emphasis placed on the Shem of the people and not the Hashem of the Lord. Catch this. Genesis 6, the worldwide mass rebellion, is characterized by those who were making a name for themselves. Genesis 11 the worldwide mass rebellion characterized by men who were making a name for themselves. Both passages relate to the heavens and the earth trying to mix in some way. In Genesis 6, it's the sons of God and the daughters of men. In Genesis 11, it's normal humanity trying to contact spiritual beings. Saints, a couple things we want to make clear. One, we're not saying that Nephilim built the Tower of Babel. No. We're speaking about a spirit that wishes for its name, their name, to be magnified rather than Hashem. In Genesis 6, we have three parties that are involved. We have daughters of men, ordinary human beings, flesh and blood, just like the rest of us, that die at the end of their lifespan like anyone else. We also have the sons of God. They were spiritual beings like angels, who were confined to a prison as a result of their deeds. Now, we're telling you this, and Judah's going to hand out passages, because of the three categories, two are rather easy to deal with. One is a normal human being, that whatever happens to a normal human being when they die, that's what happens. The other is a divine son of God, Benai Ha Elohim, and the scripture's going to tell you they were put in prison. 
But the Bible does not so easily tell you what happens to their offspring. Nick Aragina, will you get 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22? Yes. Cody, 2 Peter 2, 3 through 10. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. Pause there for a second. This is not the kind of scripture that you typically hear on a Sunday sermon, or will ever appear on your Bible applications devotional for that morning. Christ who was crucified and had the Spirit of God raise him, also went into this dungeon to preach to spirits that disobeyed long ago during the days of Noah. We are addressing something that disobeyed then and is still around, imprisoned, to hear Christ's words. I would encourage you to look at the Greek for the word preached. It's not a message of salvation, I promise you. Means proclaimed. Keep reading, Nick. <laughs> in it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Oh, come on now. After we preach to the spirits that are in prison for sins they committed during the time of Noah, the writer Peter wants you to know that Christ is sovereign over the entities in heaven. He's sovereign over the earth. That he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he has gained dominion over all. See, there was something that happened during the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ that forever changed things. We're not going to get into that this evening. But what we want you to know is that Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He proclaimed that he was victorious to those imprisoned spirits. And he now has all rulership, all dominion, and everything is submitted to him. As we get into 2 Peter 2, I want to make clear to you, the women in Genesis 6, ordinary human women, and when they died, they meet a fate just like all mankind does. The second party, the Banaha El- <laughs> the sons of God, the Banaha Elohim, they are put into prison and Jesus proclaims to them. I want you to catch this. They are called sons of God and he is called son of God, but he is the only unique son of God. He is the word made manifest. He is not a created thing He is God. In the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And He shows up and He says to them something. You'll have to imagine what that is. Let's do 2 Peter 2, 3 through 10. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. These are the angels, the sons of God, that left, came down, and found daughters of men. Do you have the slide on Tartarus? 
Keep going. I just want to be able to see it. Gloomy dungeons is this word. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, mm. if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from the trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bolton, so, you got it. In chapter 2 of 2 Peter, he's making the distinct distinction between those that sinned earlier, they're kept in gloomy dungeons. But the men who are on the earth now, he knows how to rescue them and he knows how to bring them out of trials. There's a distinction there. Us, if we sin, we can receive forgiveness. They cannot. When they sin, God put them in gloomy dungeons and they have no chance of getting out. Now that word gloomy dungeons is on the slide in Greek. When you're thinking of Tartarus, understand something. Most of the time when we're looking at a biblical word, you can compare its usage everywhere. There is no comparison to this word anywhere in the Bible. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's because the event that happened was never supposed to happen. In other words, God is dealing with something that should not have existed. And the word that Peter uses is Tartarus. It's a Greek term that means a dark abode of woe. The only times that you see it, even in Greek literature, it's a pit of darkness in the unseen realm. In Homer's writings, the Iliad, he describes it as being as far below hell as earth is below heaven. Are you getting the impression that this is a place that nobody wants to go? Well... Matthew 25 says that the lake of fire was designed for the devil and his fallen angels. This place is something else because what happened there was not something God wanted to happen in the history of man and it caused him to wipe out all of mankind to purify the human race, which is why Noah is said not only to be righteous but uncorrupted in his progenitry. He's pure. Let's do Jude 4 through 10. I'll read it. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt but later destroyed those who did not believe. Before we get to the next verse, he says, though you already know this, I want to remind you, in the mind of the original audience, the coming verses were something that was common knowledge to them, that they understood. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, fallen, coming down, creating something in the earth that should not exist. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns came 
gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Why do you think Sodom and Gomorrah keeps being mentioned? It's not because it's the exact same thing. It's because it's grotesque sexual perversion that created the incident in Genesis 6, and God wanted to burn both of them off the face of the earth. You're being told that homosexuality is genetic, and I want to assure you it's quite spiritual. Sexual immorality always carries with it um, unforeseen spiritual implications. And both Peter and Jude relate sexual immorality to what happened in Genesis 6 and what happened at Sodom and Gomorrah for a reason. Look, because we only have so much time, I want to summarize for you. Daughters of men, normal human beings, B'nai Ha Elohim, these things that defected from their celestial positions that the New Testament calls angels, they were put into a prison. Jesus actually proclaimed to them. But it still leaves a third category. The Nephilim, their offspring. That's what we want to talk to you about because Genesis 6-4 says it happened also afterwards. Yeah? Y'all ready for this? Are you too tired for it? Okay, I know these are long Bible studies, but we don't sell them. I mean, we spent our day making sure that this would be something that's understandable to you. Justin, would you hand out these passages? All right, get some hands up. Ibrahim, you're going to read Numbers 13, 33. Uh, Nick Rosales, you're going to read Deuteronomy 2, 10 through 12. Nolan, you take Joshua 11, 21 through 22. Cody, you're going to read Joshua 12, 4 through 5. And then we'll pick up from there. Number So it's important to note that the descendants of Anak were Nephilim, and and they dissuaded the initial conquest of the land. So in Numbers 13, at the time when these spies go in, they're seeing descendants of the Nephilim, and they're called Anakites, or Anakim. Who's got Deuteronomy 2, 10-12? Deuteronomy 2, 10-12. The Levites used to live there. Eleven's good. So we have Emites that used to live there, a people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites, which we just read about a moment ago. Like the Anakites, they too were considered Rephites. Listen, we don't want you to get confused in the word play. We're speaking about different nations. Have you ever read about the boogeyman and apparently every nation has a different name for the boogeyman? Well, this is an actual monster on the earth that Moab has a different name for it that these people have another name for. But in the Bible, Rephites becomes the overarching name that is used to describe this people group. They too were considered Rephites. Rephites, like the Anakites, were Nephilim. Rephites, Rephaim, or descendants of Rapha, are all the same category that become the primary name for a hybrid, spiritual, and earthly offspring that is roaming the earth causing carnage. Let's do Joshua eleven twenty one. 21. 
At that time, Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites. Who are Nephilim? Keep going. From the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anath, from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them yeah. and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory, only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. Isn't it amazing that that's where the problems in Israel are still to this day? Finish the job! Man, finish the job. Look, the first ten chapters of Joshua are about the conquest of the land, about the taking of the land. The, The writer of Joshua is noting that there is only three places that Anakites, Nephilim, or the more popular term, Rephaim, were left. And that's Gaza, Gath, wow, does Gath ring a bell? And Ashdod. Gath is, of course, Goliath's home in David's day. And that's where uh, these guys are being destroyed. Let's do Joshua 12, 4 through 5. What? Wait, he ruled over what? Oh, okay. Keep going. Zalak and all of Bashan to the border of the people of Geshur and Makkah, and half of Gilead to the border of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Man, according to the biblical narrative, Og of Bashan ruled over some 60 cities. Wow. Wow. 60 you, cities. You can read that in Deuteronomy 3. This is like a warlord Rephaite a king warlord Rephaite that's ruling over a bunch of cities. And where does it say he presided over? Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, the giant biggest mountain in Israel at the northern part. And he was of, or he was, a Rephaite. Deuteronomy 3.1 says about him, only Og, king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaites. His bed was made of iron and was more than 13 feet long and six feet wide. That could make Goliath look like a little boy. It is still in Rabbah of the Ammonites. When thinking about this giant warlord king who is a hybrid between spiritual beings and the daughters of men, the book of Enoch has something to say about Hermon. Now I want this one. Is that okay? Can I read y'all this? I don't, we don't have it on a slide, huh? This is the sixth chapter Of the book of Enoch. Okay, think of it as a commentary. It's better than J. Vernon McGee's. I mean, uh, I'm going to share eternity with that guy. I need to be nice. I'm sorry. Uh, Enoch 6, 1. And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. Like Miss Gwen. And the angels... The children of heaven saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and let us beget us children. And then Simjaza, who was their leader, said unto them, I fear ye will not agree to do this deed. And I alone will have to pay the penalty of a great sin. I want you to get this. The sons of God, the Benai Elohim, are talking about doing something. One of them goes, you weasels are going to back out and I'll be the only one that gets caught. That's, that's literally what's happening. So in verse 4 it says, And they, the Benai Elohim, all answered him and said, Let us swear an oath and bind ourselves by mutual imprecaution 
not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then they swore. They all together bound themselves by mutual oath upon it. And there, with 200, they descended in the days of Jared. If you don't recognize Jared, he's right before Noah. On the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because it was there that they swore and bound themselves with an oath upon it. Which is very interesting because of what Hermon means. According to Hitchcock's Bible name dictionary, it means anathema, a divine curse, devoted to destruction. The northernmost mountain in Israel is where they descended. It's where Og ruled, and it got its name because they devoted themselves to destruction there. Now, the reason that I say that, and it becomes important, we don't have time to do the connection. You go through Joshua's campaign, and there's this word in English that comes out as, and they devoted to destruction these things. For instance, Achan took things that were devoted to destruction. It's the same Hebrew consonants as Hermon. And in other words, the words are linguistically related. Because of the decision that was made on Hermon, God decided that there were certain groups of people that he devoted to destruction. Christians are often embarrassed to read the Older Testament. They, they don't understand. They think it sounds like Islam because they're ignorant. The only people groups that God chooses to annihilate are those that were not supposed to have existed. And you're going to find out in a little bit that they're not eligible for a resurrection. They are not human beings. Jesus Christ did not die for the Nephilim. He died for the human race. It's not to angels or Nephilim that God has subjected the world to come. It's to His Son. This becomes incredibly important. By the way, it's in the foothills of Mount Hermon that Matthew 16 takes place. When Jesus Christ stands and says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He's standing on Mount Hermon. Yeah, I see some light bulbs are going off. Do we have the circle of the Rephaim? Oh, oh, amen. This is unimportant, but I was talking with Ohad, and he lived in the Golan Heights, and this is by his house, so I thought I'd give you a picture. This has not been excavated yet. It's only visible from the air. There are five circles in the Golan Heights on, uh, on Mount Hermon that have stones in them that are 20 tons apiece. It has been dated to 3000 B.C. Okay, I, I don't know what's going on with all the monolithic structures around the world, but I would suggest to you that both Greek mythology, which is not authoritative, and the Bible agree they weren't built by regular people. It's time that we recap just a bit so that we can get to what we really want to talk to you about. We are right now... Two hours and ten minutes in. Daughters of men. They were ordinary human beings. And they died like ordinary human beings. Benai ha Elohim, sons of God, New Testament angels. They were spiritual beings. And they were confined to prison. At least the 200 or so that uh, made their oath on Hermon. 
But that leaves a third group of people. They're sometimes called Nephilim, sometimes called Emites, sometimes called Zanzumites, but their majoritative term in the Bible is Rephaim. They're giant warlord hybrids. They are the product of improper sexual relations. Where are they? What happens when they die? When Goliath's head was detached from his body, what happened? A careful search of the word has produced the answer. Now, if you don't know it, it's okay. It took me 27 years to find it. But afterwards, I did find that other scholars that I had ignored had already said it. Isn't that always the case? <laughs> Judah, why don't you pick up in Isaiah 26 and hand it out or read it? Or I'm going to read it. Let's all turn to Isaiah 26. We're going to pick up in the 13th verse. Let's read this together so we can pay careful attention to it. Somebody say there when you get there. Hey, if you are slightly fatigued, I get it. I I really do. But it's not every day that on a Monday night you get to hear what the origin of demonic spirits on the earth is. And I'm going to give you a giant hit. They are not fallen angels. That was the Sunday school myth. But they might be the bastard sons of fallen angels. Isaiah 26, verse 13. O Lord, our God, other lords beside you have ruled over us. But your name alone do we honor. Your what? Other Adonais have ruled over us. But your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits Do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. There's a couple words here at play that we want to take a look at. Other lords is the word Adonai. And it's identifying by your name, Hashem, alone do we honor. They're distinguishing between the lords that exist, that are out there, that are among the nations, And the one singular name that they honor. You remember in Genesis 6 and Genesis 11, what these other powers were after. They're after a name for themselves. They are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. Since this word departed spirits is a variant of the word Rephaim. Oh, it's not a variant. It's the exact word Rephaim. It'll appear as a different Strong's number, but when you read the Hebrew letters, it is Rephaim, and it's used specifically in cases like this where we're speaking about after having been slain. So the word is Rephaim. It is that Nephilim. It is that giant that has been slain. And what is it that is said? They do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. They They have died... And they are not eligible for a resurrection. So what happens to them? That's the question and it gets answered. Pick up in Isaiah 26 verse 15. It says, you have enlarged the nation, O Lord. What nation is that? Israel. Israel. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Now, any Bible scholars here would know that this is talking about Joshua's enlargement of the nation. This is the time when Joshua is extending 
the borders of Israel. He's extending the borders of the nation. And what is he doing in the process? He's killing Rephaim. As the borders of Israel extend, Rephaim died. Verse 16 says, Lord, they came to you in their distress. Who is coming to the Lord? The deceased spirits or the deceased Rephaim. They're coming to the Lord in their distress. When you discipline them, they could barely whisper a prayer. You may have some footnote that says, hey, the meaning of, of this whispered prayer is, is, is uncertain. Yeah, it's because God didn't listen. The book of Enoch in the 15th chapter in the second verse describes this intercession. And Enoch says, you guys, uh, you're the product of things that came in heaven. And, and they cohabitated on earth. I'm, I'm not interceding for you. I'm interceding for human beings against you. Their request was denied. Pick up in verse 17. As a woman with child about to give birth, rise and cries out in her pain. So were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain. But we gave birth to the wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. Let's pause on that for a second. Other spiritual powers have ruled over us. The Rephaim are dead, though. And they will never rise. Lord... We, though, we still haven't produced what you wanted us to produce. This is God's response to that pain that the Israelites are feeling. But your dead will live. Who's dead? The Lord's dead. Their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Man, this is an interesting passage. We have something that is happening here. We're setting up kind of a contrast. We spoke about other Adonais. We spoke about ones that would not rise. We speak about their pain and that they have not brought salvation to the earth. It says, but your dead will live. Their bodies will rise. When we get to the last part of this verse, your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will not give birth. The word for this can be cast out. It can be to shed, it can be to fall, and the word for dead is not just dead, it's Rephaim. Uh, I want to go through that because that could be easily confusing for you. Isaiah is contrasting what happens with an Israelite when they die and what happens with Rephaim when they die. And that last verse, I want to give it to you in the Young's literal translation. Thy dead, my dead body, they rise. God's, God's people will rise. Awaken, sing, ye dwellers in the dust, for the dew of herbs, thy dew, and the land, the earth, of the Rephaim, thou castest to fall. If you could imagine it, what, what Isaiah is doing is he's saying, look, the Rephaim can't rise, and I know that Israel has not produced what you wanted, but you will still cause us to rise from the dead, and the earth will cause the Rephaim to be cast out Or when Ohad read it, he read it as miscarried. The earth will produce uh, an expelling of them. It gets even better. And I don't know that we should spend a great deal of time on it, but I do want to show you a slide. Nephal. This is where the word Nephilim comes from. The word that is translated in your Bible birth 
and only once in the Bible means to be born, it usually means to fall, to lie, to prostrate oneself, to overthrow. The idea is that Isaiah is saying God's dead will rise. And there is a day coming when the earth will rid itself of the Rephaim deceased spirits. But that day has not yet come. Can I give you some commentary on it? So let's suppose that the book of Enoch is trash. That's okay. It is still being widely circulated in the 200 years before Christ. And by the way, it's quoted in the Bible. I don't read it like scripture. I read it like a commentary. I, I read it like I'd read the Talmud. I want to read you the 15th chapter. Do you all have time for that? And he answered and said unto me, I heard his voice. Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach hither and hear my voice. And go and say to the watchers of heaven. By the way, that's the Benai Elohim, watchers. Who have sent thee to intercede for them. The, The fallen sons of God are saying, Enoch, go intercede for us. Whisper a prayer. You should intercede for men and not men for you, was Enoch's response. Wherefore have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven and lain with women? You defiled yourselves with the daughter of men, and you have taken yourselves wives and have done like the children of the earth. You have begotten giants as your sons. And though ye were holy, spiritual, and you were living an eternal life, you have defiled yourself with the blood of women. You actually bore children by them, and children of men, and like children of men, have lusted after flesh. You will die like those men of flesh and blood. Therefore, I have given ordinary men wives in order that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, that thus there should be nothing that they need on the earth. But you, you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore, you were not given wives. For you, as spiritual ones of heaven, in heaven should have been your dwelling. And now the giants who are produced from the spirits of flesh, they shall be called evil spirits on the earth. And on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men and from the holy watchers, or Benai HaElohim, was their beginning and their primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth, and evil spirits is what they will be called. As for the spirits in heaven, in heaven will remain their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born upon the earth, The earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless suffer from hunger and thirst. They cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men and women because... They have proceeded from them. So let's go back to Chronicles. Why is the writer of Chronicles showing David's annihilation of the Rephaim's bodies? 
Because the gospel writers would show the Davidic sons domination over their demon spirits. He's setting it at Chronicles as the introduction to the Newer Testament. Would y'all like some practical takeaways from understanding the Rephaim? Are you interested? Yes. Amen. A couple notes. I want you to hear this word. Subsequent to coming across Isaiah 26 and realizing what the literal text said. Most of our dynamic, dynamic translations just cover over it so you never see it unless you looked at what the text actually said. Came across this. You will find men like Chuck Missler, like Dake's annotated study notes, have come across the exact same thing. This is not something that was derived from an apocryphal book. This is something that we found in the scripture that an apocryphal book shed light upon. Do you have it 20 seconds I can tell you how? Yeah. I was reading Psalm 22, the most quoted psalm from the cross. I was looking at Psalm 22 and I was, I was very excited about it. And I'm trying to place it in David's life, which is hard to do because David was not crucified. And there's this verse that says, many strong bulls of Bashan have surrounded me. And I'm like, if this is Jesus on the cross, and it is, why is he talking about strong bulls of Bashan? And all the commentaries say, well, Bashan grew big, tall things. And I was like, you know, that just kind of falls flat. Yeah. I'm pretty sure Romans surrounded the cross. I know a failed Judean leadership surrounded the cross. What are these strong bulls of Bashan? And then the next verse says they want to devour like lions. And I started looking into everything that happened at Bashan. And I'm convinced now that Jesus, while he's on the cross, is surrounded by the deceased spirits of the Rephaim who hate him because they know that he is there to show dominance over them. And that is why the New Testament writers make the point between the crucifixion and the resurrection, he went and said, hey, you couldn't stop me. I have risen above you, and we will cast you and your fathers, your angelic parents, out. The human race will rule over you. So we want to give you a few practical takeaways from Rephaim. We're going to read a few scriptures. They'll be on the screen for you. And we're going to show you how Rephaim are in these passages. The first one we want to read is Proverbs 2, 16 through 19. Verse 16, it says, It will save you also from the adulteress. That is the wisdom that Proverbs is talking about. It will save you from the adulteress. From the wayward strife with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. For her house leads down to death, and her paths to the spirits of the dead. None who go to her return or attain the paths of life. That word right there, spirits of the dead, that is Rephaim. The adulterous house leads down to death and her paths go to the Rephaim, the deceased spirits of the Nephilim. Man, that ought to tell you something there. Sexual immorality is a pathway to the demon spirits of the Rephaim. When you are engaging in sexual immorality, you're not just doing something that you think will feel good and please you in the moment. You are actually engaging in demonic activity and you are interacting with deceased spirits. Did Paul not speak about sins done outside the body versus sins done inside the body? Yeah. See, there's actually a historical backdrop for what we read about in the New Testament that was there the entire time. Hey, before you ever point and click again, consider that it caused the worldwide flood of Genesis 6. Yeah. 
The writers of the New Testament constantly relate Genesis 6 to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sexual immorality is the gateway to spiritual corruption, period. Wow. Look at our country. Proverbs 9, 13 through 18. The woman folly is loud. She's undisciplined and without knowledge. She sits at the door of her house and on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come in, come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet. <laughs> Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there. Saints, that's Rephaim. You might as well insert the word demon. Little do they know that the Rephaim are there, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. They're being invited to something that they know they should not have when they're on the straight path. And it's an invitation to open yourself up to things you should have nothing to do with. It's actually a trap. Over and over again in the Proverbs, that kind of interaction is described as a snare, as a trap, as a pit that men fall into. Well, the Proverbs say that the Rephaim lie there. Have you ever wondered why something that you're not supposed to do is so enticing to you? Well, now you know. It's not just your evil inclination. There are departed spirits of warlord hybrid kings that are trying to get you to sin in the ways that they sinned and what they're a product of. And there's a reason for that. They're guilty and they want you to be guilty. They know that you are destined to rule over yeah. all of creation. Oh, right. And they would like you to lose your heavenly station in the same way that their baby daddies did. Oh. Hey, let's do Proverbs 21, 16. It's, uh, it's pretty straightforward. Oh, I'm reading it. A man who strays from the path of understanding comes to rest in the company or congregation or assembly, Hebrew quahal, of the Rephaim, the dead. Walking away from biblically defined truth brings you to the congregation of demon Rephaim spirits. You don't believe it? Just look at all those who have. It's clear. You can be on the right path in righteousness, doing well. You start to veer from the congregation of the saints, from the written word of God, from the leading of the spirit of God. And before long, you are doing things that you never would have done and is not found among normal lost humanity. There's a reason for it. You are in Christ. There is a target on your back. Saints, we don't have time to go into the number of passages that speak about when somebody walks away from the way of truth. Deuteronomy 29, 19, Hebrews 10, 26. But you know from your own personal experience, there is nothing more sad than watching somebody who was once in love with the Lord and has strayed. And it's almost as if they have a mental condition given enough time. They don't even speak straight. This is why and what the scripture was warning about in advance. But thank God that's not the end of the story. The no. son of David came for a reason. We want to read something. We, we, we're going to read it to you, and we're at two and a half hours. That's kind of our maximum. I'm sure you could all go more, but we're weak and emaciated. <laughs> Justin, read the last verse. Verse 8. We didn't finish this the is, last verse. This is the last verse of chapter 20. These were the descendants of Rapha and Gath. 
<laughs> Two Justins. These were the descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David yeah. and his men. Come on! So catch this. Get this. Get it deep down in your spirit. I, I have no fear of the Rephaim. I have zero fear of those that are controlled by them. Because in Christ, I am the apex predator. And so are you. The way that Chronicles is presenting this is that David had victory over everyone physically. And he even dealt with the spiritual corruption that was there. And there's a good reason for that. Joshua broke the power of the Rephaim, but Joshua's descendants would have to go track down their remnants. David and his men got the last of the Rephaim on the earth, their bodies. This is completely analogous to Jesus breaking the power of the Rephaim, but it needing to be Jesus' men who would destroy the remnants of demonic work on the earth. Judah, is there a passage that comes to mind when you think of that? Well, Matthew 10, 7 could be applicable. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Yeah! Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. Freely you have received. Freely give. Saints, we've been commissioned by our Davidic son to advance his kingdom upon the earth. And just like David himself had to put to death giants, we have to do the same. He commissioned his men to accomplish this. If you notice that list that we read earlier, David killed Goliath. He did not kill a single other one. In fact, Abisha saved him at some point. He commissioned the men that had recognized the son of David, could see his banner above the nations, realized who he was, even if the rest of the world didn't recognize him yet, and they put to death the remaining entities that were opposing God's will on the earth. What do you think our job is this evening? Are are you interested in this topic? We'll come to church Wednesday and we will tell you more. Come Sunday, and we will tell you more. Yeah. We're on the offensive. Yeah. We're going to win. That's right. Sunday's message was called Star Power. Wednesday's message will be Star Wars. <laughs> and I intend to win. And I hope you intend to win. None of these things should scare you. David picked up five stones because he intended to kill them all. But like most men of God that are called, he found out he needed his brothers. And his brothers needed him. It took four more men to complete it. But they did it. Five men for five giants. How many men are in this room? Y'all stand to your feet. find that most of David's battles that he fought 